Recorded live at Toxin Tasting Studios, it's the Clerical Errors Podcast. The podcast that shows you what's behind the collar. Let's go. From the Talks and Tastings Studio, this is Bullhagen. This is Berg. And this is Vicker. And Peter's here. Hey, Pete. Hey, Pete. So, we haven't done an evening one in a while. We haven't? Have we? I don't know. It all melts together. Last couple of, the last couple episodes were evening guess, ones, right? Afternoon. Late afternoon. <clears throat> okay. So how you been? Oh, just living the dream. I got a I got a good uh, workout in this afternoon, so I'm feeling pretty good. Good. Glad to hear it. A little clang and bang. <laughs> I, oh. I'm, I'm that dude who uh, who wears a tank top with sweatpants at the gym. Of course you are. Now I'll never get it's, that image out of my head. It's cold Thanks. outside, man. You got to stay warm. Right. I don't want to have to change. And this then, is, I mean, you know. what what a perfect Lenten, you know, penitential exercise. Yeah. I, I gave up sleeves for Lent. You would. Are you sure that that's, a, that that's not pride, though? <laughs> well, is that a sin? My left arm doesn't know. Yes. My is le- it a right sin? Arm. Vicar, is it a sin? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a sin to be this ripped. <laughs> <laughs> sweatpants. Hey, better than cargo shorts. Those are the cardinal sin. <laughs> so, uh, um, yeah, we are elbow deep in Lent now. We are. We are marching closer and closer to the cross. And we don't have a, you know, we're not quite as prepared as we normally well, are. Well, and uh, of we are more penitential than we normally are because uh, Bert isn't here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that kind of puts a damper on things. Yeah, and we're finding out that that uh, we're horrible at communicating with each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was an interesting uh, exchange so or lack explain, thereof. Right. You guys want to explain what happened? Well, so Peter said to text this morning, which I missed, because I've been on visits and I, and I work out, worked out today. So I'm not buying my phone and then... My phone does a horrible job of letting me know that I got a message unless I actively search messages, which if you, anybody knows me. <laughs> right. Yeah. And yes. so, but I did, you know, uh, Berg said something and I, and uh, I, I was going to answer and I, and I looked at my phone when he said he didn't know about, or I left a message on my, my phone that I didn't get because I was working out. It said seven, <laughs> but I never actually hit send. <laughs> so clerical errors guys that's what this is and i th- and i think uh our associate producer got so tired of our text chains that she said she silenced us or something like that <laughs> yeah but do you blame her not really not really so uh, well, the we, one, the one, the one uh, communication i got was from berg saying he'd show up at 6 30 to record something extra so i was here at 6 20 <laughs> yeah. Well, let's yeah, let's just say that uh I had some business I had to take care of. And uh yeah. It sounds like you off someone. <laughs> well, you n- you never know. Yeah, we don't want to get too far behind the business we had to take care of. So uh if I was on the moon, I could destroy everybody. <laughs> it is Lent. Hey, I I'm glad you pulled that out. That is amazing. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. <laughs> That's what the producer does. So, uh, where are we at uh, in our Lent three? Yep, Lent three. Oculi, my eyes, my eyes. That's Seven. actually what Oculi means, right? So, you know. yes, it's the uh, genitive form of Oculus. There you go, man. Living the dream. So wouldn't it be Oculi? Wouldn't that be my eye, technically? What's that? Wouldn't Oculi be singular? No, it's plural. Well, it, see, it's genitive. because it's Oculus Oculi, and then it's also Oculi. Well, I'd be Oculorum, wouldn't it? Yeah, that's what I was... Maybe. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. So I can't remember which form it is. So I just I threw some I, Latin at you. How about that? Boom. Hey, I'm drawing a line in the sand here. <laughs> Don't read the Latin. Peter, do you get the reference? I'm um, I'm lost on that one. Oh my gosh, Cabin in the Woods. 
I'm not a horror movie guy. Uh, this is like meta. This is a meta movie. Like it takes mm. all the tropes from the horror films and it makes them awesome. All right, I'll, I'll look into it. You you know you want to. Do you know what we did for Jonah's birthday? He he. Uh, you went to the quiet place. No, he actually. <laughs> <laughs> we actually. Uh, um, this was not last Friday, but Saturday on the actual day of his birthday, he he made us all watch uh, Kung Pao with him. Yes. <laughs> so, which one of your sons is the most like you? Oh, they they all have a piece of me. Jonah inherited my easygoingness. Yeah, Jonah does. I not had him get, in class. He does not get rattled. Yeah, he, he is, he's very unruffled. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter inherited, uh, I think, my sense of humor, which I think <laughs> has shown through, and uh, I think he actually inherited his grandfather's smarts. <laughs> That's why that we're does still- bode well for my late life, though. <laughs> Well, I mean, this this is why we can even do a podcast of such high caliber, so. And uh, I think August inherited my activity level. That's fair. Yeah, he's... He's a... He's, he's a, a busy, goer. He's a yeah. busy, busy guy. So. So uh, what is the gospel reading for Oculi, Vicar? Be Luke 11, 14 to 28. Which is... This would be when uh, the Pharisees call Jesus names, uh, specifically that he's casting out demons by the prince of demons. And so he says? Yeah, the famous uh, quote being that, that a, uh, every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste and a house that a divided house falls. So, so Abraham Lincoln didn't come up with the quote. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. He was embedded in the tradition. I I was just listening to a podcast on the way over here, uh, How to Think Like Shakespeare, and it uh, they were talking about being embedded in the tradition, and yeah. So anyway, keep going. So well, I, well, Berg, why 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 do you suppose this is where it is in Lent? This gospel reading, because we we went from uh, uh, Jesus overcoming temptations, and then we had Jesus driving out the demon of the. The Canaanite woman's daughter, mm-hmm. and then we have this. I'm I'm just kind of curious because it because in the one year series there does seem to be movement. Where is this movement? All right, so well, yeah, it has the yeah. demonic aspect to it, right. driving out demons. So I mean, this is interesting, right? Because demons really don't show up a lot in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Not a lot. Um, you see them here and there, but uh, really. Demons are everywhere where Jesus is, right? He's like a magnet. He just attracts them to him, to himself. I know um, a few people like that. You know, yeah. <laughs> and so what's interesting here is we not only see the opposition from demons in this text, but we also see the opposition uh, of men to Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the ones whom the demons are using, namely uh, the Pharisees and the scribes, uh, they actually, uh, you know, so here we see the opposition building to Jesus, right? Uh, both in a spiritual sense, in that he's casting out more and more demons, and Jesus actually defines what his uh, mission is, right? It's to actually beat up the strong man and tie him up and then steal his stuff, right? That's why mm-hmm. Jesus came. Um, and we see more and more opposition to Jesus in this, uh, which will then culminate in Passion Tide, the fourth Sunday in Lent, where uh, Jesus calls people the sons of the, of the devil, and they pick up stones to throw at him, and then he disappears out of their sight. So here we see this opposition to Jesus building you know, I, more I, and more. I've, I haven't been doing the one-year lectionary for very long, and I've actually never noticed how, when you'd come to Lent, how it's how focused it is on, you know, the the battle between the evil, the good and evil, the, the devil and the demons. Right. The one-year lectionary has more demons in it than the exorcist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's actually real, right? Um, Wasn't so, that supposed to be based on a true story? 
Yeah, I don't know how true it was, but you know. Anyway, the book was better. <laughs> anyway, uh, so and then Jesus talks about uh, when an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, then it returns, and how it's even worse. So, like, if someone, uh, you know, these demons are cast out. The powers of darkness are cast out, and then the demon comes back, and he brings seven of his friends with him. Um, that, which that is even uh, worse. Which is, which does carry kind of a, a great Lenten theme when we talk about repentance, when we talk about... Um, like, not receiving the grace of God in vain. Like, mm-hmm. that's what that's talking about. Like, you don't trifle with these things, because it's even worse for you. Um, actually, in the Tomasius lectionary which is uh, the, the lectionary that Bach would have heard. Mm-hmm. Um, the reading for Invocavit is uh, Jesus upbraiding Capernaum and the places where he preached and did most of his mighty miracles. And he says it will be more tolerable for Sodom on the Day of Judgment than it will be for Capernaum, because Jesus preached and he did all of these miracles, and they did not repent. And so it will actually be worse for them on the Day of Judgment. And that's the thing that Christians should also, you know, there should be some fear, right? Mm -hmm. Because we can trifle with grace, and if we reject Jesus, our punishment will actually be worse than that of Sodom, which God destroyed with sulfur and brimstone and, you know. So, I mean, it is, you know, something to consider in all this. Oh, and then you find the first uh, uh, Mariologist here, right? Who says, "Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts in which, at which you nursed," mm-hmm. right? First Mary worship, right? <laughs> and what does Jesus say? Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it, right? Which is wonderful. But anyways, getting back to the text, which is awesome, right? So the strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace; his goods are safe. This is the devil, right? He is the strong man. He's fully armed. He guards his own palace. His goods are safe. We're his goods. But the, when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Y'all, isn't that just a beautiful way of describing, uh, we call this uh, Christus Victor, right? Mm-hmm. Where Christ actually uh, defeats the devil in battle. So what does it mean when uh, Jesus takes away the armor? Of the devil. He takes away the armor in which the devil trusted. That would be a good sermon theme, by the way, Vicar. So what is the armor? What is the armor? What is the armor of that the devil is wearing and trusting in to protect him? You ever thought about that? Like, no, I, ha- I haven't. You know. Um, I'm kind of slow tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and then why would Jesus take it? Right? I've heard a lot of different uh, ideas of what that armor is and might be our sins or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that's true. I think that the armor that the devil has, the armor in which he trusts, is actually the law. Oh, yeah. Right? I can see that. The law is, uh, because as we hear in 1 Corinthians 15, right, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. The only reason that the devil has us in subjection, even the only reason that the devil has any power to accuse us is because of the law of God, um, because we, we broke that law, and that law condemns us. And he, know, he knows that God is a just God. Exactly, and this is why he can actually take his place as tyrant over us. So, 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 so for the, the, the listener, um, since you're a movie buff, Right? Mm-hmm. Is there is there like a like a superhero movie that is kind of like that where where the 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 uh, the antihero somehow uses the goodness of the hero against him, knowing the hero has to respond in a certain way? Oh boy! Because it seems I'm, like it would be a theme. I'm trying to think of. Well, I mean, this is always the thing with, like, the Joker and Batman, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where he tries to get him to break his code, right? Um, oh, boy. Um, this would be a great, like... Because, like, Superman... The reason why there aren't that many good Superman movies is because what do you do with a character like Superman? He could do too much. He can do too much, They right? have to, like, come up with a fake... Well, and there's there's no real external threat to him, 
right? Mm-hmm. So what kind? So if there's no external threat, then you have to have an internal threat, right? Mm-hmm. To his concept of justice, to his concept of goodness, right? To try and make him break his code. And I can't remember if they did that in Kingdom Come. Do you? Did you ever read that comic, Peter? No. Yeah, that one's a that's that one's an interesting one. So, um. But anyway, so so um, the the arm the armor is the law. The armor is the law, right? And it is it's like a, it's like the it's uh it's like a breastplate that protects the devil from any accusation of God, right? Um, it's something he trusts in. It's something that he he uh, relies on. And then Jesus fulfills the law and takes it from him, right? Mm-hmm. And he doesn't throw the armor away. But then Jesus uses the law rightly. Right, and because so the, the, prob- law- the pro- even though it is his armor, the law is good. The law is good. It kills, but it's good. It's righteous. It is, and it's love. Right, the law of God is actually love. Love God, love your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Right, to destroy the law would be to destroy love, which is impossible, because God is love. So it's a paradox that uh, that. Uh, that he kind of hides behind because it is good, it is itself law, but because we have not kept it, that is his trump car that he holds over right. us because he knows that that uh, that is what separates us from God. And so that's the thing is that the devil then takes this armor from, or Jesus then takes the, the armor from the devil, right? And it's his trophy, and it's something that can never be used against us again because Christ has redeemed us. Right, he uh, became sin for us, um, and uh, this armor is now a trophy of Christ's, and that's why the law is always in service, and always below the gospel. Um, and it is through the gospel that we then begin to fulfill the law. Because so, if 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 that is our main thrust, we're playing right in the hands of 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 Satan, of the devil, right? So, so yeah. Um, those are just some thoughts. Uh, it's interesting, too, because Christus Victor always has to go with the vicarious satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Okay, Jesus can't just beat up the devil like it's some, you know, cosmic playground, right? Because that is not how he actually beats him up. The way that Jesus defeats the devil is by dying for our sins uh, and becoming sin itself. Right. Which you you cannot have the victory of Christ without the defeat of Christ, and you cannot have this sort of new life of Christ without his death. Jesus can't win without losing, okay? And uh, that's something we have to remember, right? Mm-hmm. So let's move on then. So we have, uh, every once in a while we talk about a sermon, and do you have prepared a sermon that you would like to... Uh, to uh, to share with us, so so right. so explain uh, first of, first of all the occasion of it. So the occasion of this is a midweek Lenten service. Um, the day was actually last Wednesday, Saint Matthias Day. Uh, Matthias is a great. He is uh, talked about in Acts chapter one, um, where uh, he is chosen to be the apostle uh, who steps into the place of Judas. Iscariot, uh, who committed suicide uh, because the number of 12 needed to be fulfilled. Um, and uh, and I've always liked the name Matthias. Actually, our uh, first child was going to be named Matthias if, if she had been a boy, but she wasn't a boy. So, um, And now my wife is cooled on the name, which is too bad. But, you know, <laughs> so I still have hope. But uh, so this is a sermon uh, on the Office of the Ministry because it's a good occasion for it, and it's a good thing for us all to hear. Uh, so what? What? Uh, why don't you just go ahead and uh, go paragraph, maybe, or go a, a portion by portion? Yeah. And maybe yeah. a more natural spot, and then we can... Yeah, and then Peter can can uh, uh, cut out all the awkward pauses. So. That's right. It's my job. <laughs> all right, so here we go. In the name of Jesus, amen. Repentance and faith in the gospel is the message and the goal of the church. John the Baptist preached, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus preached the same sermon. 
The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The whole goal of the church's preaching and teaching is the salvation of souls through repentance and faith. The only thing that creates repentance, that is, sorrow over our sins, is the preaching of the law. The law is summarized in the Ten Commandments. The law does not save us. No, the law can only give us the knowledge of our lost and sinful condition. The law must be preached. It is necessary. If you do not know that you are a sinner, then you do not know that you need a Savior. The only thing that creates faith is the preaching of the gospel, the good news that you have a gracious God because of what Jesus has done for you in his perfect life, innocent death, and glorious resurrection. All right, let's stop there. Um, I, I like uh, how you started with uh, a very catechetical description of of the purpose of the law and the gospel and, and how, it, how it plays out. Uh, a nice, nice explanation for that. Wouldn't you say, Vicar? Yeah. Yeah, it's very clear. And, and, and meaty. Yeah. Yeah, try to condense it all, you know, so mm-hmm. you don't have to. <laughs> all right, so we'll keep going. Both the law and the gospel need to be preached. Faith comes by hearing, Romans 10, 17. I think we have forgotten that. We put a lot of emphasis on reading the Bible. But tell me, where does the Bible command you to read the Bible? Paul commands Timothy to read in 1 Timothy 4.13. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. But this is the public reading of Scripture in church. The church is not a penthouse or a bookhouse. No, the church is a mouth house. The Scriptures are written for us to read out loud to our families, to our friends, to our fellow congregation members. Faith comes by hearing. All right, stop. So I, I, I like that explanation too because, well, well, one thing is uh, people didn't do a lot of reading. Right. <laughs> because it, it wasn't like they could send each other emails or it's not like they had all these books, you know, to have a book. A lot of people couldn't even afford that. Right. And I think too, even today, uh, it means more, well, you know... If you get into like media ecology, um, like this McLuhan and stuff, um, I actually think that uh, the the mass produced book has actually, for as much good as it's done, it's actually led us into more problems than what uh, we care to admit. Uh, Luther talks about this in the uh, preface to like the Large Catechism. He's like, well, these nobles and stuff, you know, they buy these books and they read them once and then they think they're doctors and that they don't need preachers anymore. And now we're seeing that to a, a further degree. Right, uh, especially with the debates about like virtual church and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. That we are actually, we create our environment by inventing technology. But then I don't think we realize that then that technology and that environment that we've created actually then shapes us. Reading a book is actually a very individualized experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it makes sense then why uh, so many Protestants who put such emphasis on reading the Bible, like the pietists, for example, who had such a very high view of literacy, would then kind of go off and start new individualistic churches wherever they went, right? Even uh, when you look at, at the prophets, you know, the prophets didn't just write something and say, here, read this. <laughs> right. <laughs> All reading was meant to be done out loud, um, and it was meant— that this word would actually confront you. It's a living voice. Mm-hmm. It's not just this voice in your head, and I think that's something um, that we actually haven't really wrestled with in the church. You know, in, in, a way, in a way you see this is an emphasis on your own personal relationship, you know, where you're quietly reading. Not, you know, preaching itself, if you think about it, is not done just by one person. It takes someone to actually preach the word and someone to hear the word. Even the command to preach is, you know, it's, you know, a preacher who's preaching to himself is not a preacher. Right. And I think, too, this is one reason why uh, we've had such a hard time having kids memorize Bible passages and the catechism. Yeah. I mean, but we forget, like, what a great benefit that is to have those things memorized where you can speak them without having to look them up in a book or Google them on your phone. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's one thing that I think we need to get back to is that, look, you know, the church is a mouth house. It's a speaking house. Um, in the family, it's, we shouldn't just read devotions, we should actually read it out loud for everyone to hear. Right? And, yeah. It's, like, it's actually a communal event. It actually brings us together, right? And it's a hearing, too. Yes, it's a hearing. You know, being a good listener to that word. Right. Uh, yeah, that, well, we talked about that with the oratatio, tenta, uh, meditatio, tentatio. Right. Where it's, it is, uh, I just lost my train of thought. But Yeah, it's something you have to engage. It's something you have to think about. Um, and, 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 yeah, my point is, uh, we, we come into it with our preconceived notions, and we use we like to use God's word to, to that agrees with us, but as to come as an open vessel and to say, you know, you know, I am willing to change my opinion on things and my life and what sin is and, and and what the gospel is by God's word, not right. And this sort of spoken word, I think, is actually more uniting. Uh, because, you know, you and your wife could take your portals of prayer, go to a separate side of the house, read the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. But you're by yourselves. You're alone. But if you read it together, right, out loud, mm-hmm. or one of you reads it, right, then it's actually an, a communal experience. It's something that unites you together. Then you know, one practice where I've really noticed this difference is uh, as a vicarage supervisor, you mm-hmm. know? I I I get the sermon beforehand, usually about a week beforehand, mm-hmm. you know, and okay, I read it, but when you hear it, it's a little different. Yeah. You know, and there have been times, you know, because when you write it, you you know you're going to preach it with cer- certain emphasis in a certain way, which it doesn't come across in the printed page. Right. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's just something that we've lost. And now we want to get rid of even more of it, you know? Even preaching, by the way, too, is, is uh, you know, when you're preaching a sermon, you, you can kind of judge how people are hearing it as well. Mm-hmm. Right. You know? And uh, that, that might affect how you're preaching it as, as well. Yeah, exactly. You know, you can actually engage your audience. And, I mean, audience is, I don't know, I'm using that in a very neutral term, but— right. That I mean, your hearers, I, and we do this all the time. We do it naturally, mm-hmm. um, but it's pretty hard to do if you're talking to a screen. Yeah, it's pretty hard to do uh, if you're only reading a sermon in a book, or or the times where I've done a podcast by myself. That's it's hard. Where I'm just staring at a microphone, yeah. no one's here. There's not a lot to right. play off of, right? <laughs> right. Um, and it's not natural because no. God didn't actually create us with books. Books aren't really an invention until about the 4th century AD with the codexes, mm-hmm. right? Um, the the mass-produced page wasn't until the 16th century. Well, late 15th century. Sorry, guys. So, but anyway. So, anyway. And we'll continue Let's on. Let's continue on, yeah. <laughs> the law must be revealed in spoken words. Otherwise, no one will see a need for a savior. The gospel must be revealed in spoken words. Otherwise, people will either become hypocrites or fall into despair. In order for the law and the gospel to be preached, you need preachers. That is what we celebrate today. In the calling of Matthias as an apostle, God graciously continues the preaching office for the eternal benefit of the church. We see this in four points. First, God promised to continue the preaching office in the Old Testament Psalms. Second, the congregation recognized her need for the preaching office by prayer and the casting of lots. Third, Matthias was chosen because of objective criteria. Therefore, preachers today are chosen by objective criteria. And fourth, the preaching office proclaims Christ crucified and risen, the goal being the creation of faith and the salvation of the soul. I like how you use the the, the term preaching office. Mm -hmm. That is uh, from the, the German... Predigamt, right? Which is, you know, a lot of people use that as generally what ministry or something like that. But yeah. but really, it if you look at uh, uh, what our confessions, the words used, it's a the preaching office. Well, and, and there's a reason why I do that because, I mean, frankly, 
when most people think of a pastor, they think of like a really crappy therapist, right? <laughs> Who's not trained to do that, right? Free. Free, right, exactly. <laughs> you know, um, and they think about, you know, some jolly old chaplain to the culture and, you know, just always nice and, you know, or maybe an administrator or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. But the highest thing that a pastor does in the church is preaching. That is the highest thing we do. If faith comes by hearing, then that is the most important job that we do. Not saying that the other stuff we do isn't important, but this is the most important thing that we do. So, all right. First, we see that God promised to continue the preaching office in the Old Testament Psalms. Very solemnly, Peter addresses the assembly as men and brethren. He points out that it was necessary, first of all, for the scriptures to be fulfilled in the defection of Judas Iscariot. His betrayal of Christ had been foretold in Psalm 41, 9. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But the terrible deeds of Judas Iscariot weren't the only things foretold by the Holy Spirit. No, we also see that the God who removed Judas from his apostolic office is also the God who provides a replacement for Judas. Peter begins by quoting Psalm 69:25, Let their dwelling place be desolate, let no one live in their tents. Psalm 69:25 shows us that Judas would be removed from his preaching office because of his unbelief and his wicked life. And even today, God removes evil pastors from the ministry because they are no longer qualified for the office. God removes these men through the church. Some pastors are removed because they consistently and persistently teach what is contrary to God's word. Some pastors are removed because of an evil life, like adultery. But pastors can only be removed for egregious offenses. They can't be removed because you don't like their personality. They can't be removed because they are not like the last pastor you had. Pastors cannot be removed because he doesn't do what you want him to do or preach the way you want him to preach. No, a pastor can only be removed for false doctrine or an evil life. Otherwise, you sin against Jesus by sinning against his preachers. That's what Jesus says in Luke 16 and 10, 16. He who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Okay, can we, is that a good place to stop? Yep. So, uh, um, that it, you bring up a whole whole lot of things there, but I would say first first thing I would say is this is one reason why we have a synod, where we, you know, the the utmost importance of having a synod or a church body is for the calling of pastors, right, and the placing of pastors, and also. Uh, to have a way, we call it rostered, that uh, the pastors, in a sense, have been, one, trained, and uh, and have shown the ability to to do their work according to the, the Word of God. Um, and uh, another thing that we do with that is we, we play this, this delicate balance in selecting pastors. We want to know some about them, but we don't necessarily want to know too much. Wouldn't you say? Go on. <laughs> I'm not quite sure where you're going with that. Oh, but. so for example, in some church bodies, when a, a congregation is looking for a new pastor, they'll have a trial period. Well, they'll have guys who kind of will take over for a Sunday, and they'll run through like six or seven uh, pastors Well, where uh, they'll come and do a Sunday, and then after they'll just kind of pick one of those guys. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not so much against trial sermons. Okay. As long as it's done in the right spirit. But but part know, of it is our human nature is we're looking for someone to be our friend right. rather than a guy to be faithful. That's the that is the problem. We we look at a whole bunch of different things that mm-hmm. have little to do with God's word. Right. I mean, it's not that he's going to be faithful in and preaching and it's or an, teaching. And, it, and it's and it's an it's a natural bias. We right. like to think, oh, we're all impartial. We can all look behind all those things, but we can't. <laughs> you know, in Walter's day, they actually did preach trials. Did they really? Yeah. Okay. So, Blice. Vicar, you should find a reference for next time on that. Yeah, I'll get right on that. So, there you go. 
So well, they should they should have the vicar do a trial sermon here before they. <laughs> Isn't that what vicarage is? Yeah, it's a year long trial, trial sermon. sermon. Yeah. <laughs> All right, keep going. Um, what All about right. uh, one? One I also have heard is the inability to fulfill the duties, whether it's health reasons or other. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, and God then removes them too. You know. Right. But uh, I, I do get into that a little bit later uh, in a different part of the sermon because it's that's not a removal as in, like, you did something wrong, mm-hmm. you know? But yeah. it also de- demands, by the way, that the, the congregation know enough of God's Word to be able to recognize it. Right. And so what does it mean to not be able to fulfill the duties, right? And, uh, you know, and what does that mean to take care of a guy who did serve faithfully— but maybe now can no longer do it because mm. he has a stroke. Right. You know, I, I I do think that that's something that, you know, congregations need to think about because what happens, like, I mean, you're a healthy guy. doesn't mean that something bad can't happen to you. Right. You know, and you guys own your own house, which is nice. But, like, you know, if, if you didn't and you lived in a parsonage, how long is the church going to, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I mean, these get to be... Some pretty serious questions, right? Mm-hmm. So, but. All right. Anyway. And if you are accusing a pastor of false doctrine or an evil life, listen to what Paul tells Timothy about accusations and pastors. He says in 1 Timothy 5.19, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. If a pastor is indeed guilty, then the same words spoken of Judas also apply to him. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents. God removed Judas by making his office, that is, his dwelling place, desolate. But God also promised to fill that vacant office. Psalm 109, verse 8, was also quoted by Peter, and it says this, Let his days be few, and let another take his office. God knows how necessary preaching is. Without preaching, there is no faith. Without faith, there is no salvation. Therefore, God, in his great and incomprehensible mercy, will provide another preacher to fill the vacancy that unholy Judas produced. God knows we need preachers. You know that you need a preacher. Vacancies are hard on a congregation. Sometimes parishes go years without filling a pastoral vacancy. And it isn't good. It isn't good for a congregation to not have a shepherd. It isn't good for the hearers to be without a preacher who tells them their sin and then tells them about their Savior. In a vacancy, the congregation is incomplete. It's not whole. And that's why God's word, Psalm 109, verse 8, is so comforting to us. Let another take his office. No pastor is irreplaceable. No pastor is that unique. Whether by another call, death, age, or sickness, pastors leave. They do. You may really like them, or you or you may really not care for them. doesn't matter. What matters is that another takes the office, so that the word of God is preached, faith is created and preserved, and people are saved. Okay, can I stop there for a minute? Yep. And, and this is, that you, you bring up uh, some important points that I, that I like in that too, and that is both pastor and people alike should be mindful of this. A pastor should be mindful that, you know, um, that I, I'm going to be leaving this congregation to at some point to a different pastor, mm-hmm. and and to to recognize um, in in what he does that that's the case, you know that uh, that uh, you know as a pastors we I think what do they call it the campsite rule you you leave a campsite better than what you left it right or you know what the way it came you know and we we try to do that. And it, but also on the other hand, um, one is is for the, the the people in the congregation to not be so beholden to a pastor rather than the mm-hmm. word of God as well, um, and uh, because that that happens too. Where I actually just read a thing on Facebook about this, and uh, you know, there's this there's this pastor in our synod uh, who's really struggling with uh, his elders at this point. And they're struggling because um, their new pastor isn't like their old pastor. 
and it causes great consternation both for the elders but also for their new pastor um it's it's difficult like to get over the the worship of personality the cult of personality uh that's a big deal um because if you are that invested in your pastor's personality well he's going to die he's going to leave even if he's with you for 40 years it doesn't eventually he's going to leave he's going to die unless jesus comes back mhm and he's the real shepherd anyway. So um, it's good to have that in mind. Yeah, because that, that happens a lot. It really does. Um, as far as, you know, um, where people think of the pastor as though he's going to be there forever or we're going to join this church because... But really, it's the Word of God that matters. Right. And I don't care how good of a person he is. He's not that good. And 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 that is that actually is one thing that here that the people have really benefited from the vicarage program because they're it's like a revolving door every year there's someone else and and each one is so vastly I mean the listener on the show even knows that our vicars are are different right personalities and, but yet and that's there's consistency really, and that's really the temptation isn't it because like vacancies are hard. But also staying in a place for a long time is also hard. So there's really, you know, there's, it just goes to show you guys that, you know, there's temptation no matter what you do. So right. <laughs> there, there are positives and, and negatives, but I do think that staying in a place uh, as long as the Lord allows you to stay there is probably a good thing, right? Because it's not good for a congregation to be without a preacher. It's not. Um any congregations that have been in vacancies for three plus years know that. And it is also when the time comes, it really can be beneficial for a pastor to take a call. Right. Um, whether it's uh, a need of a change of pace or scenery or the fact that, you know, uh, you know, a pastor might, might, you know, what I can do for a congregation might be better for. Might be done, you know. Yeah, and and uh, the fact that it might be good for the people to to hear another voice, right? Which is why hopefully we can do more round robin things in our mm-hmm. circuit anyway, which is good, you know, because it's very easy to get oh in your own echo chamber. So, all right. Second, the congregation recognized her need for the preaching office. After hearing God's judgment on Judas and the command to fill the apostolic office, the congregation prays. This ought to be the attitude of a Christian in every act of life. We should always pray that God would guide our minds and our hands in whatever we do. But it is especially important and necessary for a congregation to pray this prayer when they are calling a new pastor. Look at this prayer. You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship. There are a couple of things to see here. First, the Lord knows the hearts of all. He knows our hearts. He sees in our He sees faith in our hearts. He also knows our weaknesses and sins. What we are blind to in our own hearts, he sees. This prayer also asks that God would show which of these two he chose. That's the thing. God chooses pastors. God calls pastors. He uses the church like an instrument, but it is still God who calls pastors. This is comforting, especially when you may not like your current pastor. Whenever you think of me, know this. God chose me to be your pastor. I am your pastor. God's will is done through me. Babies are baptized and saved because I am God's instrument here. People hear the sermons and are built up in the faith. God uses me. I am his instrument. But like any tool, I can be discarded. The tool doesn't matter. God matters. God's gracious will matters. And he accomplishes that will through men. Uh, I think uh, something that kind of parallels that is uh, something I might tell a widow or a widower at a death. Mm -hmm. I think Vickers probably heard me say this a few times. And that is, you know, when you you, uh, say a wife misses... Her, her husband is mourning the loss of her husband mm-hmm. to say um, God's the one that gave you that husband for as many years as you had him right he's the one that loved you and cared for you 
in all sorts of wonderful ways through your husband. And although your husband has gone to be with, with the Lord, with Jesus, uh, the same God is, uh, is watching over you, is still caring for you. Right. And it may look like different forms. It may be through a son or a daughter or a neighbor or a friend and in in, in what you need, but it's still the same God who gives you the same love. And in the same way, uh, that is much like what you're saying about a pastor in the congregation. Mm-hmm. You know, through through your pastor, God gives you his word. He feeds you. He baptizes. He pronounces the forgiveness of your sins. He even excludes the unrepentant from the congregation. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's God doing his work. And uh, the pastors will come and they'll go. Um uh, over a long a period of time here at Trinity, you know, I've been the longest pastor they've ever had here. Have you really? Yeah. Wow. Um, and uh, but yet, you know, when my time here is over, because it will be at some point, mm-hmm. um, uh, it's the same God who will continue to proclaim His word. That that does mean that it's important as through as you call a pastor that you have ways of assuring that that pastor will do exactly what he, he does and that the congregation knows the word of God well enough to be able to right. recognize that. And that gets us to our next point. Okay. The congregation also recognizes her need by extending a call. Their call process is a lot different from ours. They called an apostle by casting lots. Just how this is, was done is not certain, but it is probable that the usage prevailing in the Old Testament was observed. Tablets on which the names of Joseph and Matthias were written were employed. These were shaken in a vase or another vessel in which they had been deposited, and the lot which fell out first furnished the decision. This then gets us to the third point. Matthias was chosen because of objective criteria. Therefore, preachers today are chosen by objective criteria. Matthias and Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, all met the same objective criteria. They had been there at the beginning, at Jesus' baptism. They both had witnessed the miracles. They had both heard Jesus preaching, and they were there until the day of the ascension. Both were qualified to be a witness of Jesus' resurrection. Pastors today are examined. They must also meet objective criteria. We find this criteria in 1 Timothy chapter 3. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest he be puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil." A man must be qualified to be a pastor. But even a qualified man cannot be a pastor unless he is called. Joseph, called Barsabbas, was qualified, but not called. It is good for us to remember that, since we may prefer one qualified applicant over the other. What matters is is that they are faithful, apt to teach, and fulfill the qualifications God set out in 1 Timothy 3. That is a good pastor. That is a qualified pastor. That is the pastor we call. Okay. So as you as I you, you talk about the list, the qualifications, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there, there's two ways to look at that list. One is exclusionary, mm-hmm. or ex- exclude the the opposite of that list. But it's also inclusionary, meaning that uh, um, someone who has those characteristics, yep, is is able to fulfill the office. Yeah, if, if the need arises. Because there are times where Timothy, I think, was actually having trouble finding pastors. Right. You know? Well, and, and, that, and, you know, and Paul's like, so do you know someone who is a husband of one wife who can teach? <laughs> right. Who's not a novice. <laughs> right. Right. Who's been a Christian for at least five years. You yeah. Know? You have something like that? <laughs> well, and, you know, I think, honestly, that is something that we should be thinking about because— uh, we never know when the day might come when we might not have seminaries. We might not have... Uh, Just libraries. <laughs> well, even the libraries we might not have. <laughs> um, you know, we might, and we might 
get killed, right? Yeah. You know, that's the thing is like, we should actually have a list of qualified men whom we are grooming just in case they are ever called by a congregation, right, to fulfill these duties in an emergency. Because, I mean, it, it's happened, right? Mm-hmm. In the last hundred years, we've seen it in Soviet Russia. We've seen it all over the place, right? I mean, this isn't something new. And if we actually believe that the preaching office is necessary... And opposed. Yep. And historically, you know, every year since the church has been into being, there has been a pastor who has been killed. (laughs) Right. If we know that, then we should actually be thinking of qualified men. We should have actually a list in our congregation, um, just in case, because you never know. That's the thing. And And for a congregation to know that the pastor is willing to die for them. Right. You know, um, we always hope that there will be easy ways to get pastors, yeah. but <laughs> you never, you never know, right? Yeah, and, and not that we're seeking death. I think we could, we could. I envision situations right. where, you know, where we're not, <laughs> where we welcome death rather than avoid it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're definitely not. You know, we're not wanting to be martyred, but you know, the thing is, is. If we truly do believe this is true, that the church needs pastors, then we should have qualified guys on hand just in case. And, you know? and, and this is something very, very important to the listener, uh, kind of a, a behind-the-collar thing that, that, uh, that, that people can think of, and that is, if you want people to, to rise up and be a pastor, okay, uh, then how what a blessing it is for you in your home and you with your neighbors to talk well of your pastor. Yes, talk well of your pastor. It, and, and encourage these young people, right? And, you know, encourage that young boy and say, hey, look, even if you don't go on to seminary, know your catechism, know your Bible, you know? An example of, of another way that which you see this which I'm not sure exactly what this means, but uh, my father, when he was in the seminary, I think he told me that uh, at that point, about 50% of the guys at the seminary were pastor's kids. Mm -hmm. Um, I've only had one vicar who was a son of a pastor. Yeah. Um, I've had way more vicars who grew up Catholic than were a son of a pastor. Right. I had a lot in my class who didn't grow up LCMS. Um, How many in your class did you have that were, that was a son of a pastor? Not very many, not mostly prices probably. (laughs) Actually, I didn't have any of them in my classes. So, you know, but no, I mean, that's, that's the thing is like, and what does that say? I mean, I am a pastor's son and, mm -hmm. and I think my, my father had good experiences Mm -hmm. and it was a happy childhood, which, Made. But would you want one of your children? Would you want one of your sons to be a pastor? Only if they wanted to. Only if they. That's. I'm kind of the same way. It's like if you can't do anything else, fine, be a pastor. But like I said, I want my son to be qualified. I don't necessarily want him to, right. unless he has to. You know. Did I put any pressure on you, Peter, to become a pastor? No, not at all. I got the cop out of the. Uh, I've got little brothers, so. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean it's good. It's good. Like every every son should be qualified, you know. And so families in your homes talk about your pastor as though it should be held in high esteem. That talk about him in the same way you would talk about your favorite football player. Not that you should idolize them, but. Respect that they can aspire and have wait, the desire that, to be that. That's too old school. Talk about your pastor as you would talk about your favorite YouTuber. Because that's what all the kids want to be now are these YouTube stars. So, Is that true, so, Peter? You're, you're, you're our, our young person representative here. I don't know. Most of the YouTubers I watch, I just think are idiots, but it's funny to watch. So, Well, you, you do the have the—you're uh, experienced, but this is what, like, 
This is what the kids in the school all talk about. They, you know, what do they want to grow up to be? YouTube stars. So they talk about ninja at school. Ninja? I yeah. no, I I don't know about ninja. Or maybe shroud. They've yeah. Is that the new one? That that's the is that the the successor to Fortnite or whatever? Nin, ninja is the Fortnite guy. Okay. Because they've talked about Fortnite, I. But I don't know. I played this virtual reality thing. Just about made me dizzy at one of the kids' houses, and uh, where you shoot the bow and arrow. Oh, oh I love that. that game. Yeah, I. It was it was interesting, but boy, I the graphics were really neat. But. Do you want do you want to hear something funny about that? Okay. Oh. So uh, Peter's grandmother. Yeah. Um, the, she was called to glory in November, but Peter brought over the virtuality virtual reality thing, and there's a thing where you can. You can like throw and play fetch with the dog. Yeah. Okay. And so Peter's grandmother is doing that, mm-hmm. playing with the dog, playing fetch with the dog in a virtual way. And she goes, Oh my, I can even pet the dog. And she's petting the carpet. <laughs> oh no. Thinking that she's actually petting the dog, that she can feel <laughs> oh. the fur of the dog and she's petting the carpet. Wow. Yeah. Is that something you'll ever forget, Peter? No. <laughs> That's probably you know definitely top five. I've I, I use my I have a VR headset and I got I was like one of the early adopters right. I got one of the first ones, and uh, I've had so many people put it on, and so I have I I like try and spread it, uh, but I have tons of stories. The the other one I had where uh, there was a person that was playing with. There's a little gun that you can make a balloon, and then so you hold the button and it blows up the balloon, and then when you let go of the button, the balloon shoots off of it and flies around the room and this person didn't realize that it was going to shoot off so she let go of the button it flew off and she ran full speed chasing after it directly into a wall (laughs) (laughs) that's terrible (laughs) (laughs) all right by the way in, in in accordance with your sermon virtual reality church is not a thing right it's not a thing okay uh we can talk about that in another show i think (laughs) But anyway, should I well, finish Well, virtual this reality podcast would be amazing. Right. It is amazing. So, all right. Finally, we see that the preaching office proclaims Christ crucified and risen, the goal being the creation of faith and the salvation of the soul. Matthias joins the Twelve. He preaches and teaches. He baptizes and prays. He does the work of an apostle, a sent one. We don't hear any more about him in the Bible. We don't know where he preached. We don't even know where he died and was buried. But we do know that he faithfully preached Christ crucified and that people were saved by God through his preaching. That's really all a pastor can ask for. Fame and fortune are meaningless. Moving the congregation toward this earthly goal or that earthly goal is also pretty meaningless in the grand scheme of things. What matters is that God's word is preached purely. What matters is that the sacraments are administered according to Christ's institution. What matters is that God in his boundless love saves us for the sake of Jesus through the preached word and the sacraments. Thank God for the apostleship of Matthias, which shows us God's concern for preaching in the Old Testament Psalms, which shows us the congregation's concern for preaching, which shows us the objective criteria of calling a pastor, and which shows us the goal of the preaching office, the proclamation of Christ and the salvation of souls. Very good. I, I like that. That is, uh, and that's for a, a Lenten midweek service. Yep, since St. Matthias is on, was on a Wednesday this year. So... And that, that is a, a great uh, teaching sermon on the Office of the Ministry. So if you've got any questions, where can they reach us, Vicar? Any question can be sent to us, email feedback at clericalerrors.org. You could send it by Facebook, facebook.com slash podcast, And on Twitter, at clericalerrorsp. At me, bro. P for podcast. That's P for podcast. Well, thank you for that sermon, uh, Berg, and uh, thank you for joining us today. Um, uh, kind of a very, we needed a more meaty <laughs> episode after our last last one. I don't know if we did, we had the top 12 list of what we'll look like at 200. and It was pretty rad. I mean, yeah. you know. But uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. So thank you, Berg. And thank you for listening, listener. I'm Bullhagen. I'm Berg. And I'm Vicker. And may your preaching office be qualified.
<laughs> I, I like the I like the awkwardness of that one. Thank you for joining us. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Questions, thoughts, concerns? You can contact us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast, on Twitter at clericalheirsp for podcast, or email us at feedback at clericalheirs.org. Thanks for listening to Clerical Heirs. See you next time.